If you would open your Bibles to John chapter 2. We are in a series in John's Gospel. The title of our series is The Word Became Flesh. And the subtitle for this particular message, the seventh in the series, is Jesus' Passion for Pure Worship. And if you would, join me in prayer before we engage God's Word. Heavenly Father, we come to your holy word today. We desire to be instructed by your word and ask that you would use your word to illuminate our hearts, to guide us, to teach us truth in Jesus Christ, to believe the words of Jesus, to believe the words of Scripture, and to entrust ourselves to him. Amen. Amen. We arrive at a fairly well-known story in the life of Jesus, often referred to as the cleansing of the temple. In this account, uh, Jesus, whip in hand, drives out the, sh- the ox and the sheep and turns over the, the, the uh, tables of the money changers, dumps out the coins, drives out those selling doves, etc., It's, this, this story is often cited when talking about the humanity of Jesus, showing that even Jesus got angry. In fact, it may come to mind if, if you are angry and someone asks, what would Jesus do? I mean, the first thing I think in a situation like that is get his whip, you know. That's what, what he'd do right now. Um, sure, Jesus got angry. I mean, we could, we could say that here and, and it may well do that, but... I think there's a more important question as we arrive at this text, which is why? Why did Jesus get angry? Jesus didn't just show up that day, um, see what was going on in the temple, kind of surprised and explode with anger. What we'll see today from the text is that he actually arrived looking for the money changers and carried out a plan. Why? What, what motivated this action, this plan of his? Why was he angry? And what, what is his message to them? What is his message to us today? I think it revolves around this. Pure worship is important to Jesus. Pure worship is important to Jesus. You know, it's interesting, the first murder the, in, in the Bible comes right after the fall of man, and it grew out of envy, but it was envy over acceptable versus unacceptable Worship in Genesis 4. In the account of the woman at the well that comes in John 4, a familiar story, Jesus makes a bold declaration about worship. He says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and His worshipers must worship in Spirit and truth. That story often comes to mind in worship discussions. It's relevant to pure worship. This story about Jesus turning over the tables, dumping out the coins and so forth, might not come to mind, but I would suggest it should in a discussion about worship. Jesus' cleansing of the temple has to do with worship. It has to do with pure worship. The temple in Jerusalem was the focal point of worship for the Jews. 
The temple represents the fact that God is dwelling among His people. You may recall from the history of Judah, if you're familiar with the Old Testament story of the kings, that prior to the time that they're sent away into captivity to Babylon, some of the last kings of Judah worshipped idols in the temple. They actually worshipped idols in the temple. And, 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 and Manasseh comes to mind, and his son uh, as well. It was an abomination. After the exile, when the Jews returned to the land of Israel, there was a focus on keeping worship pure so that God's presence of blessing would restore them completely. They were wanting to make sure that none of this idolatry took place in the temple. So this was something that was of concern to them. Jesus' anger is regarding impurity that had been introduced into God's prescribed means of worship. So... We're going to look at this in our text. Our text breaks down once again into two halves plus a closing statement as it did in the previous scene. And I'll call these uh, three sections, the, the prophetic message, verses 12 through 17, the, the promised sign, verses 18 through 21, and then that closing statement is the path to worship in verse 22. So if you would join me in verse 12, we'll begin under the heading, the prophetic act. After this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days, or literally not many days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in verse 12 here, Jesus goes down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, his disciples, and they remained there not many days. And then in verse 13, before he can get settled in, because it was the Passover. By the way, Passover was a festival that, at least under the law, required every Jewish male to go up to Jerusalem. He went up to Jerusalem to his father's house. Now, according to Matthew 4, verse 13, Jesus had moved his residence from Nazareth to Capernaum. And it appears here that it's the residence also of his mother and his brothers, which would make sense. Last week, we talked about how the two stories, the, the story of the water to wine story and this story of the, his father's house displays a bit of a tension between Jesus. Is he going to do his mother's will or his father's will? And you, you see that tension uh, displayed here a little bit. But even by itself, the story that we're looking at today raises the question, is Jesus to remain with his earthly home there in Capernaum, or is he pursuing his father's house, his eternal home. You see, he doesn't get settled in his earthly home in order that he might pursue worship in the other home, his father's home. He is a sojourner on the earth. Now, what is the Passover? It's Passover, so he, even though he's just gotten home, barely has time to settle, he, he's on his way to Jerusalem. What is this Passover? It's the commemoration and the celebration of the Exodus, their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. But there's a relationship between the Passover and what Jesus does in the temple. There's a relationship between the Passover and what Jesus does in the temple. What was the temple? Uh, and more particular, particularly, what was the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem? What was it? Wasn't it the dwelling place of God? The very presence of God? It was, it was that place where 
it not only outwardly represented, but actually and factually was the place where God had come to abide in a special and unique way in the midst of his people. Back in the days of the wilderness, that Holy of Holies was in a tent, in, a, in, in the tabernacle. And, and God dwelt there to, to show them that He was camping with them, that He lived with them. It was, as it were, a return to the garden where God dwelled with Adam and Eve, but they had been sent out. But now, because of the, the, the sacrifices and so forth, they're allowed to have uh, access to the presence of God through various uh, means with the priests and so forth. It was very regulated. Not anyone could walk in at any time. But this, this temple, this sanctuary within the temple, represents God's presence among his people. What was the purpose of the first Passover, the Exodus itself? What was the very purpose? Well, we're told what the purpose of the Exodus, the, the, the original Passover, was in the book of Exodus, chapter 29 and verse 46. There it tells us why the Lord had had them, the Israelites, build the sanctuary, then in the tabernacle, later it was in the temple, it tells us why the Lord had them build it to begin with. It says, they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. Why did God bring them out of Egypt? So that he might dwell among them. And, and it goes on to explain right prior to that, it, it talks about this is why they're building the tabernacle and the sanctuary within it. They're building it, and, and hence, in the future, the temple, so that God might dwell there among them. That's the actual reason for the exodus itself. You, you might think that if it weren't for the fact that God needed to pull them out of a land of complete and total idolatry and put them in a place where, where they could worship God and, and have purity of worship, they may well have been left in Egypt. But God wanted a place for pure worship. And so he brings them out that he might dwell among them. The very purpose of the Exodus is in order that there would be this sanctuary or holy place housed in the tabernacle or now temple that God might dwell among them. Sure, God is everywhere, but he was going to dwell among them in a unique way. His kingdom, his rule, his benevolence. I mean, it's obvious he was in Egypt. Look at what everything he did to Pharaoh and, and all that was going on there. But he wasn't in Egypt the way he wanted to be amongst his people with his rule, his benevolence, his kingdom. And so that's what would take place in the promised land. But there was something going on at the temple during this Passover that Jesus goes up there for. There was something going on at the temple that is contrary to the purpose for which God had brought them out to begin with. Something was contrary to the very dwelling place of God. What is it? Well, let's look at Jesus at the temple beginning in verse 14. In the temple courts... He found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now we're told that Jesus went to Jerusalem, and the next thing we're told is that he found the, uh, in the temple those selling cattle and sheep, doves and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. Now, it just assumes he's going to the temple 
and indeed he does, and he was not surprised to see them. He actually looked for them. He knew they were there and went looking for them. This is what was happening that was contrary to God's purpose for the temple. Then he makes and, and uses a, a whip from some cords or reeds. It's described in a way that could mean cords, reeds. I mean, this is no Roman cat of nine tails. This is no whip that would be used for punishment, okay? This, this isn't some sort of thing that would really start drive fear in those that are around him. Uh, he's using it to drive the sheep and the cattle out, and it doesn't take a lot to, to get their attention and get them moving in that direction. And as he's going through, he dumps out the coins of the money changers, and he turns over their tables. Now, these money changers were not there year-round, but only during certain festival seasons, when people would travel from long distances needing their services. It was, for instance, impractical uh, to travel from across the Mediterranean Sea, bringing all your livestock with you that you're going to sacrifice. So, no, what you do is you might sell them or exchange them for money where you're at, then travel across the sea, then come to Jerusalem and buy the, 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 the cattle that you need, the, the sheep that you need, and so forth for sacrifices. Or it, is in, it, it would be impractical for the poor that were traveling even from, from Galilee to Jerusalem to, to bring with them doves for sacrifice. Doves were the sacrifices of the poor. So they too could come and just purchase doves when they got there and, and, and offer their sacrifices. Can you imagine bringing bird cages with you on this long journey on foot? Maybe you've got a donkey, maybe you don't. It, it was a very practical thing and it served the people that were there. The money changes provided a necessary service by allowing people to travel. And then in these outer courts of the temple, they could purchase these animals. To paraphrase the third century church father, Origen considered that Jesus separating these money changers from their money to be a greater miracle than turning water to wine in the early part of the chapter since it involved the hearts of men. <laughs> Point taken. Though it might rather be called a prophetic act than a miracle, a prophetic act is an action that is communicating a prophetic message. An action that is communicating a prophetic message. So Jesus didn't just come there and prophesy. Rather, he acted out. And you see that in the Old Testament. Prophets would frequently act things out to demonstrate their message. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here as a prophet. What is the message that Jesus is communicating? Well, to understand his message, it's important that we not read too much into it. We're not told why Jesus had a problem with this. For example, we are not told that, that they are charging too much for the sheep and, 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 and the ox or the doves. Nor are we told that they are scamming the people. Okay? And, and oftentimes when we get to accounts like this, we want to start merging all the information we might have and things of that. It's important to let the text speak for itself. The text will point us to what the issue is. And so, let's not read too much into the text. Let's just read what it says. We are only told that they are there, the animals and the money changers, and that Jesus tells them that they had made his father's house into a, a house of business, a market house. And, and the word used there for the house of business, a market house, it does not necessarily imply dishonesty or cheating. Strictly speaking, the issue is that rather than being a place of worship, it is a place of business. That is the issue. 
This is a place designed for worship. And you have turned it into a place for business. There may well have been some cheating going on. And the other gospel writers may speak to that. But John's point is about their use of the temple for business. God instructed the people of God to build the temple for the purpose of connecting people to God in order that they may worship him. It is possible that Jesus would not have had a problem with what they were doing had it been moved into the streets outside the temple grounds. I'm not saying that that is the case, but merely that based on what John tells us in the text, that that is entirely possible. I don't know whether that's the case or not. We can't know, based on what we're told here, whether that would be the case, whether, whether if they're doing it outside the temple grounds, Jesus would be fine with it. Or would he still have turned it over? We don't know. That would be entirely speculative. He has a problem with it happening there because it's his father's house, and the father's house was built so that God might dwell among his people, and they've turned it into a house of business. That's the issue at its core. At a minimum, this event should inform how we view worship. Let me explain. It's not uncommon today for worship services, and I use that in quotation marks, worship services, because we've, we've in some sense defined worship by that very phrase, but to, to be entirely built around the needs, desires, or convenience of the worshipers, or what is culturally relevant to the worshiper. But all of that might be said for the buying and selling of animals in the temple. It was convenient. It was culturally relevant. It met a need of the worshiper. Worship is not about us. Worship is about God. First and foremost, worship is about God. He is the object of our worship. Worship begins when God is made known and reaches its purpose when we respond appropriately in faith to what he has revealed. We don't get to pick the means of worship. He does. We don't get to pick the means of worship. He does. For instance, one might say, Hey, it's really cool that we have these lights. They went up for Christmas, but they look pretty good, so we left them there. That we have these lights that we've added, and that, that's really cool to have those in our time of worship. Okay. But then someone might say, is it okay that we've added lights during our, in our building for our time of worship? And, and it, we might answer, yes, but why do we answer yes? If we answer yes... Because we've searched the scriptures and there's nothing there that would tell us there's anything wrong with doing that, then good. But if we answer yes because, well, I prefer lights, then bad. Same answer. One's a bad answer, one's a good answer. It isn't the answer that I'm concerned with here, it's the heart behind it. Why do we do what we do in worship? Is it because we're interested in worshiping the Father as He's prescribed? Or is it because we really don't care what he's prescribed? We care more about what we want. That's the issue that it boils down to when it comes to purity of worship. Now, it may help to attempt to define worship. And I say attempt because I'm not sure that anyone's arrived at the definition of worship. So I'll, 
I'll, I'll use some definitions and, and work on that from other, what others have contributed. Now, I think there are some weak definitions. Some define it as the singing part of the worship service. You know, we worship for 30 minutes or 25 minutes or whatever it is, and then we have the preaching. You know, that would be a, uh, what I'd put in the bad definition of worship. Um, others define it on the other extreme quite generally as either everything we do before God or our heart's attitude toward God. In other words, it's, it's so nebulous that it doesn't really have any definition. So what is worship? I think an incomplete but good working definition is cited by Alan Ross in a book he wrote on worship. Worship is, he says, uh, the expression of a relationship in which God the Father reveals himself and his love in Christ and by his Holy Spirit administers grace to which we respond in faith, gratitude, and obedience. Now, that definition is informed by the New Testament completely, and so it might be hard to press into John 2, which, which was early in the gospel scene, but it, it, it does point out something that is essential to worship, older New Testament, and that is that God reveals himself, and we respond in faith, gratitude, and obedience. If we just take that portion of it, God reveals himself, and we respond in faith, gratitude, and obedience. I think that gives us something that's at the core of worship. Obedience implies that we don't just do what we, as we please in worship. We don't just do what gains adherence. We must pay attention to what God has revealed, what he has called for, what he desires. This prophetic action that Jesus takes in the cleansing of the temple is calling them to reform their worship to what God had revealed. It had a message concerning worship that was not according to the truth. It was an acted out message, but it was no act. He was quite zealous about this message. He had intense feelings about this message. As we read next in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for true worship in the Father's house will consume Jesus. Now, I want to point out three things from that line that I think are relevant to what we're saying, talking about here. One, his disciples remembered. It isn't conclusive, but it appears that the disciples recalled this verse from Psalm 69 at the time when Jesus did this, not after the resurrection, because John, as we'll see later, points out when they remembered something later, and here he just says they remembered it. Even in their newly formed faith, they were seeing that Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. But why did they recall this verse from Psalm 69? I mean, and that leads us to the second thing to point out, and that's something about Psalm 69 in its context. There, there's nothing about taking a whip to the animals in the temple or dumping out cash registers found in Psalm 69. So what's the connection that they made to what Jesus did from Psalm 69? I mean, you ever look up those verses and like where they're quoted when you read one quoted and you go back and you look at it and go, how did they get that? Okay, well, this is one of those, how did they get that? Okay, so it's important to go back and look. Uh, John Golden Gay in his commentary on Psalm 69 titles this psalm this way. When people mock zeal for Yahweh's house. When people mock zeal for Yahweh's house. It is a psalm from someone who is persecuted because of their passion to honor God and worship God according to God's ways. 
in opposition to what had become the popular brand of religion in that day whenever it was written. One might easily imagine some of the lines from that psalm on the lips of David, for instance, when after he was dancing before the ark of the Lord with all his might as it entered Jerusalem, he discovered that he had uh, been despised by his wife Michael, daughter of Saul. He was passionate about worship to God, but he was mocked and ridiculed by his wife. Or on the lips of Nehemiah when his enemy, enemy Sambalat and Tobiah sent a false prophet to tell Nehemiah to hide in the temple to save his life. He, he realized they were trying to intimidate him into sin by doing this. Or on the lips of Jeremiah whose zeal for God's truth and the true worship of God got him thrown into a well deep with mud for many days. And there are several lines in the psalm that talk about being sinking into the miry depths. Psalm 69, if you look at the verses immediately uh, surrounding uh, what, what were, or, or, or before this verse that is quoted, you, you'll note some interesting things. First, beginning in verse 7 of Psalm 69, it says, For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Now, knowing that the, the temple scene in John 2 began with Jesus leaving Capernaum to go to his father's house in Jerusalem, leaving his mother and his brothers, which are specifically mentioned. I notice that this verse that immediately precedes the quoted verse that, that, that the disciples remembered refers to estrangement from his own family and his mother's children, his brothers, in other words. Now, the psalm may be speaking more broadly of his family as one of the Jewish people who would ultimately reject Jesus because he came to testify to the truth. But there's, there's certainly in the context something there that's connected. And then, finally, I think it's worth noting that there's a tense change. A tense change. So the context of Psalm 69 is about somebody who is mocked for their zeal for the house of the Lord. But there's a tense change and and. and I don't mean that like the music got really tense and something changed. I mean that there's a change in the tense of the verb. <clears throat> when, when John cited from Psalm 69, he changes the verb tense from a past to a future. Psalm 69 verse 9 reads, Zeal for your house consumed me or has consumed me. But the disciples' understanding, it rep when they understood because it represents the, an, an application to Jesus, they know the kind of holy zeal that Jesus has is going to consume him. So they say, will consume me. It will be the death of him. You see, this verse is ultimately talking about his crucifixion. It is this love for the Father and the truth that will ultimately get him crucified. And that leads to the promised sign. Look at verse 18. The Jews then responded to him. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? It's a strange question. Or, or is it? Depends. You see, they didn't ask why he did it. Now, I think the normal question, at least in our minds, would be, why did you do this? But that's not what they asked. They said, what kind, sign can you show us for doing this? That gives you the right to do this, in other words. What What, what, what sign? They asked for some proof of the claim he was making by doing it. 
Their, their question requires that they knew something of the meaning of his action. That the, the driving out of the animals from the temple, the, the pouring out the coins, the dumping over the tables for business. Doing this, what he did, means something. What does it mean? Well, I, I believe it's rooted in something they knew that the Messiah would do. Possibly, for instance, a couple of options, a couple of verses, and I don't think it's just one verse. I think it's several verses that together gave them this awareness. Malachi, for instance, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. That, that, of course, John the Baptist. Then, suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says Yahweh Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. In other words, he will purify. He will cleanse. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will ha uh, have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by. As in days gone by as in former years. Or, for instance, Isaiah 66, verse 5 and following. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your own people who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. Yet they will be put to shame. And then listen to verse 6. Hear that uproar from the city. Hear that noise from the temple. It is the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all they deserve. See, they knew that when the Messiah came, he would purify the worship of the temple. And so when they see Jesus doing this, they don't ask why he's doing it. They ask him to give them a sign that shows that he has the authority to do this, that he is who he is claiming to be by the very act. And Jesus promises them just that, a sign. But, of course, it's one they, they don't understand. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Verse 14, we had read earlier, says that Jesus, upon arriving in Jerusalem, went to the temple courts. The word used there, temple courts or temple, uh, can refer to the whole temple complex. Hence, it's translated temple courts to make a distinction from where we, what we have here. Destroy this temple is actually a different word. It's not temple courts it's, or, or the whole complex. It's the word that when used side by side would refer to the inner sanctuary, the, the place behind the curtain, the very dwelling place of God, not including the outer court of the Gentiles and, and so forth. Jesus declares, destroy this sanctuary, this temple, this dwelling place of God, and I will raise it up in three days. Now, their, their response is perfectly reasonable. It's an understandable response. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to build it back in three days? It implies, are you crazy? I mean, but it's not an unreasonable response. Had you and I been there and we had heard him say that, we didn't have any knowledge of the resurrection, I mean, I think we'd have probably thought the same thing. And Jesus said, wait a minute, let me explain. I didn't mean that. No, no, no. Let me... wait, no, he didn't actually do that, did he? 
You just let it go. No, but we, the readers, are the ones who, the, the, that get let in. See, we who have an interest in knowing who Jesus is, who are reading or hearing the gospel that is being presented before us, we get let in on a secret, an inside track. But the temple he had spoken about was his body. Oh, now that changes everything. In other words, when, when zeal for his father's house consumes him, and he is crucified, on the third day he'll be raised to life. Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it on the third day. The resurrection of Jesus following his death is the promised sign. That is the sign that he promises to give them. It's what they ask for, and it's what he promises to give them. A sign, the resurrection. Much like the other gospel writers who talk about no sign will be given for those who demand a sign, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. Three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, you know. And, and, and so here again, a similar sign. It's referring to the same thing, his death and resurrection. What does the death and resurrection of Jesus change regarding worship? What does the death and resurrection of Jesus change regarding worship? And the answer is everything. I mean, you could probably say just about everything, but everything <laughs> is how I'll put it. John has been building to this theme. In chapter 1 of John's gospel, verse 14, we're told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, or literally tabernacled among us, using a word that could refer to that tabernacle in the wilderness, tinted among us. Jesus is God tabernacling among us. And then in chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus tells us, You'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Taking language right from Genesis 28, where God gives Jacob a dream of the angels ascending and descending a ladder on his rock pillow, which becomes a rock pillar, uh, bearing the name Bethel, the house of God, the dwelling place of God. Jesus is the house of God. Now, the whole story here in uh, John chapter 2 and this account of the cleansing of the temple is set in the temple with Jesus going to the temple in Jerusalem looking for what is wrong in the temple, driving it out, and then declaring his own body will be the new temple of God after his death and resurrection. The resurrected Jesus is the temple, the very dwelling place of God, the place of worship. The only true means by which we may access God, the only means by which true and pure worship can exist is in and through Jesus Christ. Everything's changed. The death and resurrection of Jesus changes the very definition of true worship forever. The author of the book of Hebrews understood this well. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, he tells us that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's the body of Jesus again. Destroy it and I'll raise it up. Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then in verse 18, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, and that, that therefore sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So if sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary, not only are the ox, the sheep, and the doves not necessary, but the whole temple itself is not necessary, especially if the presence of God has changed locations. I'm tempted to make a few comments about eschatology here, but I will refrain from that. 
and restrain my thoughts. But this has relevance to that. The presence of God has changed locations, and, and indeed it has for, for the writer of Hebrews goes on to tell us in verse 19 and following, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Now, according to chapter 8 of Hebrews, he's not talking about that place inside the brick temple now. He's talking about the heavenly most holy place that we've now surpassed the earthly temple and the earthly sanctuary and we participate in a heavenly sanctuary that we now have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way open for us through what through the curtain that is his body in other words his body he said is the sanctuary the inner dwelling place of God the curtain and it represents that entrance into that sanctuary it's just another way of saying the same thing he is the dwelling place of God through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, now he goes on to describe what this true worship looks like through this great priest over the house of God. Verse 22, let us, here's what true worship looks like, draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings the, the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Pure worship looks like drawing near to God, not just knowing we can, but actually doing it, drawing near to God through the new and living way, Jesus Christ, having full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, no longer dwelling on our sin, but rejoicing in the righteousness that he has given us. Verse 23. Here's what pure worship looks like. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. The hope that the gospel gives us, the hope of the gospel, the resurrection from the dead, we hold to that unswervingly because of his resurrection we know. And we, we, we don't let go of that. In verse 24, here's what true worship looks like. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Do you worship God by the new and living way, Jesus Christ? Do, do you draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that, that only faith can bring? Do you hold unswervingly to the hope of the gospel? Does your worship involve others with whom you gather, those you spur on toward love and good deeds, others who spur you on toward love and good deeds? And maybe somebody might say, well, you know, other people don't really spur me on. I'm not really motivated that way. I'm sorry. This isn't about you. It's about him. And this is how he defines pure worship. You see, others can motivate us by their example. They can motivate us through their words. And by the way, others can motivate us through their needs. See, I might not be motivated toward love and good deeds because I could be really unaware of those needs by not being around those people. And so others might motivate me toward love and good deeds simply by being around me so that I'm aware of the need. If we do not worship in these ways that are described here, might Jesus come with a whip through our house of worship? Quoting Alan Ross again from his book on worship, he writes, Worship was designed to be a communal activity, a time 
when the household of faith would assemble to praise God together, to pray for one another, to continue in the word and encourage one another, and to commemorate together the sacrificial atonement that God provided to make them one. Worship was designed to be a communal activity. A time when the household of faith would assemble to praise God together, to pray for one another, to continue in the word and encourage one another, and to commemorate together the sacrificial atonement that God provided to make them one. Listen, history shows that being part of a group can strengthen us for good or evil. Many young men in Germany during the 30s, uh, early 30s and, 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 or into the early 40s committed acts of evil that they would never have thought to do by themselves, but were moved by their unity with the larger group, the Third Reich, to do so. Conversely, our faith may be weak when we are alone, but it is strengthened to worship as we are joined together as part of something much bigger and stronger than any of us alone are. We need one another for pure worship. And this leads to the closing statement here in our text, verse 22. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Once Jesus was raised... Once the temple of his body had been destroyed and raised up again, this whole event came to the mind of the disciples with great clarity. And then we have a declaration about faith. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. In the account of the, the wedding feast, we looked at two weeks ago, we learned that to believe in Jesus, to entrust oneself to him, means that we do what he says, no matter how unreasonable nonsensical or pointless it may seem, and that he will work miracles without our even knowing that they're, when they're happening and what's taking place until later. We'll see that he's done a work. But we obey what he says. In this account, the one we're looking at today, we discover how one believes in Jesus today. Today, when we can't walk with him through Galilee between Cana and Jerusalem, when we, when we can't go to the temple with him and listen to him teach, we must believe the scripture and the words of Jesus, which are now put on the same level, the scripture and the words of Jesus, for his word is spirit and life. Amen? It's, they're equated one with the other. His death, the destruction of the temple of his body, means that our sins are forgiven and that we can draw near in full assurance of faith. Pure worship means to believe those words and draw near. Hold fast to the hope of the gospel, which is the resurrection, because he is raised. We, too, will be raised to life. It means gathering together to encourage and be encouraged in the gospel, for his words are the object of our faith. This is the way of worship in spirit and truth, the only pure worship of God. Pure worship is through faith. In Jesus Christ, through entrusting oneself completely to Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, teach us what pure worship is. 
teach us what pure worship is. And though, Lord, pure worship is not about this building, that this building is not the sanctuary, this building is not the temple, pure worship is about this gathering, about this body of people joined together in Jesus Christ, worshiping before the heavenly Jerusalem in the most holy place. True worship Pure worship cannot be done in total isolation. Though we might partake in parts of it through the week by ourselves, it reaches its fullness as we gather together in the Spirit before your throne through Jesus Christ. Lord, open our eyes to see thoughts, ideas, attitudes we have that are not consistent with pure worship. And let us have a passion for pure worship that is in some measure like that which you have, Lord Jesus. Amen.